Turn, if you will, again to Exodus chapter 32. <coughs> Exodus 32. This section of the book of Exodus has proved to be a real challenge to me to know how to divvy it up. Last week we set in the size of a sermon text for one sermon as we discussed the whole section about the building of the tabernacle, picking up at the end of chapter 24 all the way through 31. And then, of course, that there's a verbatim repetition of that in chapters 35 to 40. That's about 13 chapters. I don't know that we'll ever do that again. But this week we have a, a shorter text. This week only three chapters to look at. I know that sounds too long as well. But as Peter Inns says in his excellent commentary, chapters 32 to 34 cannot be separated without affecting the integrity of the whole. To chop up this narrative into smaller units, however convenient, will only disrupt the message they're intended to convey. So I'll try to work fast. You listen close, and we'll make it through this uh, familiar story. Let's start by just reading the story, and it's a bit lengthy, but then again a story, so we'll, we'll hear it for a while, beginning with chapter 31, reading through 34. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him, and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward they sat down to eat and to drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I have commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce angle, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. <coughs> Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. 
The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire and he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold and threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron let them get out of control and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword on his side, go back and forth to the camp, from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And the Levites did as Moses commanded in that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You've been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now, now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their, son, their sin. But if not, then blot me out of your book, as you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead this people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you even for a moment, I might destroy you. Your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. And Moses used to take a tent and pitch it out some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks with his friend, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. 
Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people in the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, Yahweh, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. And I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on the mountaintop. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of this mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, proclaiming wickedness, rebellion, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never done before in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their ashwood poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make cast idols. Celebrate the feast of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, 
for in that, that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest you must rest. Celebrate the feast of weeks with the firstborn of the wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. I will drive out nations before you enlarge and enlarge your territory, and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to be along with anything containing yeast. Do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover feast remain until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Long story. Many different facets of it. We won't possibly be able to talk about all of it. But let me suggest two simple truths that God wants us to learn from this passage and try to show you where we see that. The first is this. Here God wants us to see the sinfulness of sin. Here God wants us to see the sinfulness of sin. Did you ever notice how we can grow up in the faith? We can learn good habits, learn to be a pretty good person, and never really see what sin is. Sure, we've made mistakes, but we're pretty good people, right? Churches are full of people like this. It's often not until we do something that just about totally destroys our lives that we begin to see how sinful our sin really is, how desperately we need a Savior. As we come to this section in Exodus, we find Israel in that kind of a situation. There has really been hardly any talk of sin in the book of Exodus up to this point. In fact, sin is mentioned more in this account than it has been mentioned in the first 30 chapters of Exodus. Instead, we've heard how God loved Israel and what great lengths he went to deliver them from Egypt. It was Pharaoh who was sinful. They were the victims of his oppression. 
the New Testament tells us that God gave his law that they might see the sinfulness of their sin. And I think that's what happens here. As in Genesis chapter 3, in the record of the fall, sin is about to raise its ugly head. Sin so bad that it called into question whether God's covenant with them would survive. Sin that would drive them to see their need of pure mercy. I think that's what God wants us to learn from this text today. God wants us to see the sinfulness of sin. So let's think what made this situation so sinful, such a slap in God's face. First, I think the speed with which Israel abandoned the Lord. God had appeared to them with majesty and fire and sound and fury on Mount Sinai. They heard his voice giving the law of Moses. When Moses came back with the book of the covenant, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord says will do. When Moses returned to the mountain to receive God's instruction for the tabernacle, before God could even finish his instruction, they forgot everything they had heard. They abandoned everything they had committed themselves to, and they began to act like pagans who never knew the Lord. Peter Inns notes that the rapid pace with which the rapid pace which, with, with which um, we move from the final, from the final, I'm sorry, the rapid pace which which this text moves from the final instructions about the tabernacle to the sin at the foot of the mountain, the rapid pace is numbing. But sin's like that. Swift to abandon the Lord. We also see their sinfulness and their lack of gratitude and respect for the leader whom God had raised up and given to them. Moses had given his life to go back to Egypt to rescue these people. And now they refer to him in a way that both in Hebrew and English is, is at least disrespectful. This fellow, this fellow Moses. They had asked Moses to go and speak to the Lord on their behalf because of their fear of the Lord. But 40 days was apparently too long to wait for him to come back with the Lord's word. What ingratitude. But that's how sin is. Then, of course, there was the most obvious sin, the violation of the commandments themselves. At first, we might just see this as a violation of the first commandment. In other words, they chose to worship some other god. But it wasn't that easy. Indeed, sin is always, almost always more deceitful than that. Sin almost always justifies itself with elaborate rationalizations. They didn't just dream up this idea of making a, a golden calf out of a, a thin air. The calf or the young bull had widespread religious, was a widespread religious symbol way back in Egypt from which they had come and in Canaan to which they were going and all the way back in ancient Babylon where Abraham came from. These animals were not actually thought to be gods, however. They were considered the earthly representations of gods. Upon their shoulders, the gods were thought to be enthroned. So what do these people say when the golden calf is made? What do you hear? 
Here is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron builds an altar and declares a festival to Yahweh the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. You see, it's primarily the second commandment that they violated, not the first. They were not content to worship an unseen God who spoke to them his law. They wanted something for their senses. They wanted a representation they could see. They wanted to worship like the rest of the world worshipped, like other religions. But by attributing the Lord's great salvation to this God of their imagination, they violated not only the second commandment about man-made worship, they violated the first commandment, for in reality they found themselves bowing down worshiping before an idol, and they violated the third commandment, for they defiled God's name, attributing his name to the statue of a dumb beast. In fact, the case can be made that by their actions, Israel was fashioning a whole new alternative religion. Here's a different representation of God's presence. Not the Ark of the Covenant, but the back of a bull. Here's a different altar built. Not the one God commanded, but one before a golden calf. Here's a new festival declared. Not the Passover that God had declared, but a new festival. Here's a new ceremonial eating and drinking. Not like back in chapter 24 where they confirmed the covenant that God had made but a new sacramental meal where they ate and drank and rose up to play. Indeed, they're singing in celebration, not like when God brought them out of Egypt, singing praise to the Lord, but a new kind of party in front of this golden calf. Such is the sinfulness of sin. It is subtle. It is deceptive. It is complex in its rationalizations, and it becomes a whole different religion, though it still speaks of worshiping the Lord. Oh, but we can best see the seriousness of sin, sinfulness, when we see it through the eyes of Moses, for these people are caught up in what they're doing, but Moses is caught up with the mind of God, for he's just come from God's presence. When Moses comes down the mountain and sees what happened, he's so distressed that he throws down these sacred tablets of stone that God himself had written on. This is not an accident. This is an intentional, symbolic act, for they had broken this covenant that the Lord made with them. In his indignation at their sin, he destroyed the golden calf. He burned it to ashes, ground it into dust, sprinkled it in their drinking water. Thus they were made to drink the cup of cursing, like the unfaithful bride in Numbers. Then Moses called out those whose allegiance was still to the Lord, and the Levites responded. And Moses said, strap on your sword, and he sent them out to execute the most guilty. Some 3,000 died that day. Now this may sound harsh to us, but folks, death was the penalty for even touching the mountain where the Lord gave his law. How much more those who blatantly violate that law and break his covenant never underestimate the sinfulness of sin. 
Oh, but even that was not the end of this matter. In chapter, in verse 30 of chapter 32, Moses goes back to the Lord on behalf of these sinful people. He says, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps, perhaps, I can make atonement for you. And so Moses went and made his request to the Lord, but the Lord was not persuaded by Moses' request. He promised to punish the guilty, and sure enough, verse 35 says, he sent plagues upon them. Oh, but the worst judgment of all was God's declaration that his presence would no longer go with these people up to the land of promise. God said to Moses, you go. I'm not going with you. Because you're a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you. I'm so angry. Now remember, the presence of the Lord with his people was the goal of the redemption out of Egypt that they might be with and worship the Lord. That presence of God in the midst of his people was a unifying theme of the whole design of the tabernacle. Indeed, that presence of God with his people is what distinguished them from all the nations of the world. But now God says, no longer will you know my presence. And when the people realized this, finally they understood the sinfulness of their sin. They began to, to mourn. They humbled themselves by stripping off the ornaments they were wearing. You see, this is what sin does. It's not a matter of losing some of the blessings, some of the stuff that God gives us. Sin alienates us from God himself. Sin reverses the promised benediction, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine upon you, and God turns his face away. Though we might work to recover many things, God's presence is not ours to control. Indeed, on Judgment Day, the very worst thing we could ever possibly hear is, depart from me. Out of my presence. I don't know him. That's the sinfulness of sin. It separates us from God's presence. Some of you know this overwhelming hopelessness. You've been there, haven't you? I know of nothing worse I've never experienced anything worse than realizing that the light of God's presence is gone. And there's nothing I can do about it. That's where we are as sinners, lawbreakers, before a holy one. Indeed, there's no hope for one who thinks, oh, not me, I'm better off than that. Well, I've been keeping the law, I'm doing pretty well. No, God wants us to see the sinfulness of sin with a strange, ironic twist. Seeing our hopelessness is our only ray of hope. Seeing our hopelessness 
is the only ray of hope we have. Which brings us to the second thing we need to learn from this passage. Here God wants not only for us to see the sinfulness of sin, here God wants us to see the graciousness of grace. The graciousness of grace. You've heard me talk about how Christ is the center of everything in the scripture. There's nothing that will transform your thinking about the Bible than to realize that every bit of it is meant to point us to Christ. And so you've heard me go through the litany from time to time of how Christ is seen in the Old Testament. And in Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman, kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he's the trusted prophet. In Chronicles and Kings, he's the king, the reigning king. And so it goes throughout book after book after book of the Bible. For nowhere can you look in Scripture but what Jesus is, what the Scripture's talking about. Well, here in Exodus 32 to 34, we see Jesus too. But here we see Jesus foreshadowed in the person of Moses. Throughout Jewish history, no one holds a more favored position, a more, a more privileged and honored position than Moses. For Moses was God's appointed mediator, as we've seen before. But here, especially in the actions of Moses, we see not just the greatness of Moses, but we see a foreshadowing of Christ, the ultimate mediator between God and man. Here Moses points us to the one in whom the grace of God comes in all of its graciousness. Here God wants us to see that graciousness of Christ as it's pictured in the person Moses. So consider with me. Think down through this story again. Of what we see in Moses that points us to Christ. There's several things. First, when Moses hears of Israel's sinfulness, he's still up on the mountain with the Lord himself. In fact, he hears from the Lord. We find this discussion in uh, chapter 32, verse 7 to 14. The Lord's displeased with his people. And he says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against these people. I'm going to destroy them. And instead, I'm going to make of you, Moses, a great nation. God's had enough. He's ready to get rid of these people. Start all over. Moses will be the new Abraham. Sounds like quite an opportunity for Moses, doesn't it? But Moses will have none of it. He argues with the Lord. Lord, if you do this, your own name will be maligned among the Egyptians. Lord, if you do this, what about your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Moses argues with the Lord to not forget his promises, to not focus on himself, but to save his ancient people. And the Lord relents and does not destroy them. Now, can you begin to see how the grace of God here points us to Jesus? Before time began, God saw what was going to happen. He knew how Abraham would sin, I mean, how Adam would sin. 
And so what will he do with Adam? Will he just destroy Adam and start over somewhere? No, God entered into a covenant with his son, and the son said, I will go. I will become a descendant of Adam in order to save this people, such as the graciousness of grace. Then Moses comes down and he actually sees the behavior of the Israelites and he could no longer contain his anger. It was worse than he ever imagined. So as we've already pointed out, he destroyed the statue and he destroyed the guiltiest of the people. But then in verse 30 of chapter 32, Moses still goes back to the Lord hoping to make an atonement for the people. And Moses, understanding the sinfulness of sin much better than they did, understands what kind of atonement would be necessary. And listen to what he says to the Lord. Here's Moses' deal. Now, Lord, please forgive their sin. But if not, blot me out of your book. Did you get that? Moses offers to die in the place of this people if that will cause them to be forgiven. Well, the Lord rejects Moses' offer, saying, no, the guilty will be punished themselves. But you see, in making that kind of an offer, Moses points us to Christ. Moses was not rejected because he had a bad plan there, only because he was not qualified enough to do that. But Jesus is qualified. As a man, he's able to be our representative, taking our sin upon himself. And as God, he's able to pay that penalty of sin. But Moses pr proposed that day that he would substitute for the sin of the people is exactly how sin was atoned for in the end. Christ Jesus died for our sin, the righteous one for the wicked. He took our sin upon himself and paid the penalty that we might be forgiven. You see, Moses in his concern for atonement is pointing us to Jesus who will actually do that. He wants us to see the graciousness of his grace. As this story goes on, because of Israel's sin, God's attention is turned completely to Moses. This section about Moses pitching his tent outside the camp, it sounds like, as we read the NIV, that that's a habitual, a pattern of Moses. But I think it was a one-time thing that what happened was Moses moved his tent outside the camp. And when he did, God's, the sign of God's presence, the pillar of cloud, moved to be over Moses' tent. There the Lord met with Moses alone for only Moses was pleasing to him. But Moses was still concerned for the whole nation. Moses began to question God about what was going to happen here, about the plan to go to the land of promise. God promised Moses that uh, he would go. God said to Moses, my presence will go with you, singular, you, Moses. But that's not good enough for Moses. Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, plural, then don't send us. For God's presence that distinguishes his people from the rest of the nation. 
And once again, as, God, as Moses argued with the Lord and interceded with the Lord, God agreed that he would go with them. Now, do you see how this has Jesus' name written all over it again? How do we know Jesus? How do we know God's presence? Because we're good enough? No. Because we're in Christ, for God is pleased with Jesus, as he was pleased with Moses, not the nation. But this Jesus, who died, also rose from the dead and promised us his presence to the end of the world. And on the day of Pentecost, he sent his spirit to dwell in our midst. And because of Christ, we do know God's presence. Moses, the great mediator on behalf of the people, is a foreshadowing of Jesus by whose grace we know the presence of God. God wants us to see the greatness of that grace. Then at the end of chapter 33, because God was pleased with Moses, he allowed Moses to see the back of his glory. Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want some tangible confirmation of this. The Lord said, well, you can't really see my glory, but I'll hide you here in this cleft of the rock, and as I pass by, you can see the back of my glory. Great privilege for Moses. But it's dwarfed by the privilege of Christ. For when the Savior had made atonement for our sin, he ascended into the Father's, to the Father's right hand and sat there in power. He entered God's presence not just to see his glory, but to share his glory, such as our Savior one infinitely greater than Moses, as his grace is infinitely greater than anything Moses knew. God wants us to see the greatness of his grace. Well, in chapter 34, God renews the broken covenant. Moses returns to Mount Sinai, where God again writes on tablets of stone. In this section, much of the material of the book of the covenant and the Ten Commandments and the requirements for the Passover are repeated as God in his great grace restores to Israel the law they had broken. Restores it through this mediator, Moses. But then a strange thing happens. When Moses comes down from the mountain, his face is shining with glory. In fact, it's shining so brilliantly that he had to cover up his face. that people couldn't stand to look at him. When he spoke to the Lord, he uncovered his face. When he spoke to the people, he put a veil to cover his face. Just as the people could not enter the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle because of the glory of God, they could not look on Moses because of the reflection of the glory of God. Peter Hintz explains that his role as mediator was so great that he became almost an embodiment of the tabernacle. You see, no one was a mediator like Moses. He reflected the glory of God. Ah, but in 2 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul makes reference to that very detail here at the end of this story. He's writing about how superior the new covenant is to the old covenant. How superior the covenant in Christ is to the covenant of the law. And his point is, it's as glorious as as, uh, Moses, his point is that as glorious as Moses' ministry was, It didn't hold a candle to the Spirit of Christ in the New Covenant. 
For though Moses saw and reflected God's glory, Jesus is the fullness of God's glory. And he is our mediator who reconciles us to God and gives us his own spirit. As the Apostle Paul writes, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory, speaking of Christ. And that's God's concern as we read these chapters. He wants us to see the glorious graciousness of his grace extended to us, not just through Moses, but in Christ. That's the point here. This morning I tell you, if God has in his grace allowed you to see the sinfulness of your sin, the hopelessness of your condition, he's brought you to that place in order that you might discover the grace that's in Jesus. That's the answer to the hopelessness. That was the answer to Israel's hopelessness, the grace of God mediated by Moses. And that's the answer to our hopelessness. This morning I call you to come to, to, come to Jesus in faith, to cast yourself upon his mercy, to trust him in his grace. He's the one who Moses is telling us about. With a big text, we just kind of whiz through it and don't talk about all the details. But lest we be tempted to go out and make some points that uh, we shouldn't make from this, let me tell you a couple things that we should not learn from this text. This golden calf incident does not tell us how God is dealing with the world today. It does not say that because the world is so full of sin and we see it everywhere, that we ought to expect God to strike down sinners at any moment. God is not striking down the wicked these days. This is a day of grace when God is saving the wicked. It's on judgment day he will strike down the wicked, not today. So this golden calf incident and all this story around it does not call us to go out to strike down the wicked either. Some Christians may envision themselves somehow strapping on swords like the Levites and going out to slay the wicked. No, God sent us with a different kind of sword, the sword of his spirit, which is the word of God, the gospel. That's how we address the wicked. Call them to repentance and tell them the grace in Jesus. He's not called us to be vigilantes for God. He's called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Another thing that we should not learn from this is that the golden calf incident does not tell us how God is dealing with his church either. Many Christians tend to think this way. Oh, God's anger is hanging over us. If we mess up, he's going to abandon us. No. God's not angry with his church. He's not just waiting to stomp on his people. Not because we're better than Israel, we're not. But because we are in Christ, with whom he's well pleased. We don't have to walk around cowering in fear. Because we don't measure up to God's law and he may strike us any moment. No. No. 
Peter ends right so, pain, so pointedly. To put it another way, the good news of the gospel is that Exodus 32 to 34 does not apply to us today. It's not that the nature of God has changed, but rather that a mediator has come by God's design who knew no sin and became sin for us. This perspective ought not minimize the story of the golden calf, but to see it as Christians ought to see it in light of the empty tomb. There's some things we ought not learn from this section, so what should we learn again? God wants us to see the sinfulness of sin. It's much worse than we're inclined to think. God is being, being merciful when he brings us to see our hopelessness. Then God wants us to see the graciousness of his grace to us in Jesus. Moses was a mediator like none before him. He's the greatest that Israel ever knew. But his greatness was only a foreshadowing pointing us to Jesus, the perfect mediator who now reconciles us forever to God. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this account that you preserved for us that shows us, Lord, how sin works and we certainly can identify with it. We've seen sin work in that deceitful, subtle way in our own lives until we would despair of your love for us and your presence with us. But we thank you, Lord, that woven through this account, you also show us the graciousness of grace. The grace that we really can only, will only see and can only know through Jesus. But pictured there, in the actions of Moses, your faithful servant. So Lord, help us to live in light of these things. Disdaining sin, everything that smacks of sin, and resting in your grace, in the love of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.